Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shalom. This is Rabbi Joshua Heller, and welcome to Daily Daf Differently. Today we're studying Yevamot, Daf Kuf Chaf Bet, 122. We are finishing the Masacha today, and I'm not sure I've ever been so happy to see a Hadran. We're still wrestling with the question of what evidence is sufficient to conclude that a husband is truly dead, and therefore allow his wife to remarry. And the sages have already bent on this point quite a bit. Now, one of the central foci of this daf is an analysis of how these exemptions came to be to begin with, with Rabbi Akiva as the main figure in the discussions. Rabbi Akiva reports in the Mishnah that he traveled to Nehardea, a city in Babylonia, to participate in the intercalation of the year. Normally, this would be done only by a court in the land of Israel. But this happened to be during the time leading up to or during the Bar Kocha rebellion, and due to Roman persecution, the sages could not meet freely in the land of Israel. So now as far as Rabbi Akiva knew, there was only a single lone voice who permitted establishing death based on the words of a single witness. Normally, two witnesses would be required for any legal proceeding. But then another sage, Rabbi Nehemiah, whom he met along the way, testified that in fact, Sages of a previous generation, including Rabban Gamliel, had permitted a woman to remarry on the testimony of a single witness. Now, the end of that mission reports that Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Joshua disagree with Rabbi Akiva and do not permit the testimony of a single witness. However, a Brita, cited by the Gemara, reports that Rabbi Akiva himself came up with reasoning to permit testimony of a woman even a relative who would ordinarily be ineligible to testify anyway, um, provided that she was not in one of a very few forbidden categories that we saw elsewhere in this tractate. So, Rabbi Akiva's position evolved, but the text of the Mishnah was not edited to reflect his final thoughts on the matter. Now, as time goes on, the law becomes even more lenient. So by the time we get to the Stam Mishnah 70 years later, we see all of the things that our tractate reports. So for in fact, on the previous daf, we accepted the possibility of hearsay evidence. And on this daf, we see even more weak evidence that is accepted. For example, we hear a voice that we cannot identify announcing the death. And we accept it, even though we don't know who this speaker even was. Now the final frontier on this topic would seem to be the testimony of a non-Jew. So normally, an idolater's testimony would not be trusted at all under any circumstances. But in this case, there may be no other sources of information, and the sages want to bend as far as they can. There is an important sociological reality here at work. It is a time of conflict. There is a lot of violence. Jews are no longer living in a homogeneously Jewish society. They are working with non-Jews, staying at inns populated by non-Jews, traveling in caravans with non-Jews, and in fact, being murdered by non-Jews. And so innkeepers, travelers, and even murderers become our best sources of information. 
the sages grapple with these competing trends on the one hand of wanting to allow women to remarry, but on the other hand, not wanting to trust random people who might have all kinds of reasons to lie. And they come up with something of a catch-22 situation. They say that non-Jews will be believed when they are speaking Messiah lefi tumo, speaking casually or innocently, but not if they speak with the intent of testifying or impacting the deliberations or offering testimony. So, for example, if a man runs through the streets saying, get me someone from the house of Chivai, for he has died, that's sufficient, because he's not trying to testify, he's just reporting as he goes. On the other hand, if someone came to us specifically to let us know that someone had died so that their spouse could remarry, we would not believe them. There is a well-analyzed case of an innkeeper who reports that her guest had died and she buried him. And there's actually a question as to whether we will accept her words since she says so in answer to our question as to what happened to him. But in the end, we accept the claim because she's able to buttress her statement by presenting some of the man's personal effects. Now, to take the most extreme example, the person might even say that he killed the husband. So, for example, we have a case of a non-Jew who threatened a Jew, pick these crops for me on the Sabbath, or I will kill you, just as I killed so-and-so, the Jew, when he refused to cook a dish for me on Shabbat. So in other words, he is, in the process of threatening one person, revealing that he killed another. Is that sufficient testimony for our purposes? It comes before the sage Abaye, and he's not sure. And so he lets the case sit for a year, until finally he is encouraged to go to Rav Yosef, a sage whose wits are as sharp as a knife. In the end, Rabbi Yosef incisively decides that the non-Jew was really not Messiah Lefi Tumo, speaking disinterestedly, because in fact, he might have had an incentive to lie. After all, how better to effectively threaten a person than to claim to have killed someone whether or not he actually did. And so in fact, it may have just been bluster and he might not have killed the other person at all. Now in a modern twist, I recall hearing of a case in Israel where a man involved in the world of crime disappeared, leaving a wife behind. The other criminals who were involved in his disappearance actually were willing to tell rabbis on a bait dean how they had disposed of the deceased on the condition that not be reported to police, thus allowing the wife of the deceased to remarry. And in that case, they were believed because they were speaking not even innocently, but actually against their own interest. Now there's one final point of law here. Normally in a serious case, cross-examination of the witnesses is required. And we're actually told the story of Rabbi Tarfon, who grills a man who reported on the death of a Jew that he was traveling with, and asked all sorts of questions about his name, his city of origin, etc., trying to trip him up. Rabbi Akiva disagrees. Now, in the end, we follow the view of Rabbi Akiva, as his view has evolved, as you see through this staff of the Gemara, that we accept almost any kind of testimony you could possibly imagine, and we don't ask any questions we don't want to hear the answer to. Perhaps in the end, the sages recognize that sometimes there are societal goods, like the ability of borrowers to get loans, or the ability of women to remarry, that outweigh holding strictly to the letter of the law. Our tractate ends 
as several others do, with the claim that sages increase peace in the world. Now, in some tractates, that claim might seem to be a little bit far-fetched. In this case, coming off the claim that the sages really look to bend the letter of the law to make sure that there is a just and kind society, we might just believe them. Hadranalach Masechet Yevamot. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.